Before we get going, could you do me a massive favor and press the follow or subscribe button wherever you listen to the podcast? You'll be actively helping the podcast to develop and grow, so I'll be really grateful. Vision and Graft, a career and resilience companion with Richard William Preisner. Episode 11, here we are. And this week I'm talking to screenwriter, journalist and producer Emily Carlton. She's incredibly humble, very amusing and very honest in this conversation. So I'd highly recommend listening to it all the way through. In the conversation, she also discusses her amazing initiative that she's co-founded called Breaking Through the Lens, which connects female and non-binary filmmakers to finance at film markets. And I've included a link to the website for that in the show notes at visiongraph.com, where you can find out more about that. And if you're interested in that initiative, um, you can get in touch through that website. Emily's got such an amazing drive and such perseverance for what she does and a deep desire for equality in society and in the film industry. And that's why she co-founded Breaking Through the Lens. Like I said, she's a screenwriter, very talented. She's just recently got an agent and really gives an insight into the life of a screenwriter and a writer in general. I'm also about to do the first draw to win a Roscoe Digital Swatch book. It's free to enter, so don't forget to get your entry in by simply just leaving me a review on Apple Podcasts. That's all you need to do. And let me know your details um, so that I know who to contact if you win. Um, you can do that via the website or on Instagram. So let's move on to my conversation with this week's guest, Emily Carlton. I want to take it right back to the beginning and ask kind of how did it all begin? How did you decide you wanted to kind of become a creative and do all this? And what's the journey been like so far? Yeah, my, so my dad was a writer and a theatre director and my mum is an actress. So I grew up, like, I was very lucky because I always thought these were the kind of things you could do as jobs, which I feel like is the first barrier for a lot of people. And actually, I went in the other direction and I was like, I'm going to have a real job. I'm not, I saw how, like, stressful it could be and how unhappy it can make you when you sort of are your career. And I was like, that's for suckers. Definitely not. Um, and uh, so I wanted to go into, did politics because I loved studying it. I kept thinking that, oh, if I keep doing things I love, I'll end up in a job that I love. And that wasn't really the case. So I had like, I've had a couple of different career attempts and sort of ended up kind of unhappy in office jobs even when the people I was working with were great, my jobs were good. I'm just really not good at like office life. And then another one of our mutual friends, Daphne Schmoen, who's a childhood friend of mine and an amazing film director. She moved to London and she wanted to make a short and she'd read a short story that I'd written as part of a course and she wanted to turn that into a short film. So she asked me to write the script for it. I knew nothing about writing scripts. I think the first thing I sent her was like a Word document that just wasn't a script, right? And I was like, this will be fine. <laughs> I've done zero research. And then she was very politely like, no, this will not be fine. <laughs> and I started reading screenwriting books kind of to do this one project. And I just completely fell in love with it and realized that there was a kind of creative satisfaction that I wasn't getting from my life, that it really felt like the puzzle pieces falling into place. How old were you at this point? I was 26. All right. Okay. Yeah. So it's like, kind of old to, to realize what you want to do. Although, I mean, younger than some people still, but I felt very, very much like I was really old to be starting, which, you know, now I'm in my thirties. That seems silly, but <laughs> I felt like yeah. everybody else was like coming out of film school, super young and fresh. And so I really went into overdrive. I started doing um, 
odd jobs like tutoring and working in an ice cream stall and just like read every screenwriting book, listened to like every podcast I could. I think at one point, like I just became obsessed. Every hour of the day was about like trying to see the free film school and catch up. And then mm. I think that's why signing with this agency has felt like such a big moment because finally I'm like, oh, I feel like I caught up. <laughs> which, yeah, yeah. Which is a nice feeling. But yeah, it was just, it was really, because I'm dyslexic as well, which is mm-hmm. kind of unusual for a writer. So I think screenwriting really appealed to me because the grammar is a little bit different and it just felt like a way I could really easily express myself, which other forms of writing hadn't been, so. Your screenwriting's kind of explored quite a few themes, mental health and well-being kind of being one of those themes. And your work as an editor for Cause and Effect magazine also involves discussion of mental health as described on the website as in a candid, beautiful and an accessible way. So what is it that draws you to look at the themes of mental health in your work? I think it's the same reason that I wanted to study politics. I think I'm just really interested in people. And people are at their most interesting when they're slightly dysfunctional, right? Like I Mm -hmm. come up with new ideas and pitches and a lot of them have come from, I'll read an article about someone who did something really messed up and just become, like recently I read about a murder case and I wanted, it inspired me to want to write this TV show because I was just like, what would make someone do something like that? And there's always a logical reason, right? Like people, people are just so fascinating when they do think, it's like, how do you get to that point? And I think that ends up exploring mental health and wellness because that's, well, like no one's totally well, right? Yeah, so it's it's a kind of explore deeper sort of human condition in a way. Yeah, I just, you know, happy, fine people are really boring. So, <laughs> <laughs> But isn't that what we're all aspiring to? <laughs> yeah, maybe. I would, I would probably like to be more boring myself. But Yeah, 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 same. <laughs> There'd be no podcast probably. <laughs> um, so it's kind of similar to what you were just talking about, but where do you draw the inspiration from for your work? Do you have a specific kind of go-to areas in your life, like art or music or whatever? Is there anything specific you you return to for inspiration? I'm kind of working that out at the moment, actually. And so I feel like I've tried lots of different ways. I found that like the New Yorker do a fiction podcast where writers read their favorite short stories written by somebody else. And I... For some reason, that's for like, I save it for when I'm really stuck. That's my like go-to. It will always inspire me because they read them quite slowly and I can be doing something else. And my mind starts wandering and basically I start like guessing where I think the story is going to go. And I'm not nearly as good as any of these writers. So obviously the story that they come up with is much, much better. But in the process, I've come up with my own version, if that makes sense. Yeah. I always find I leave there with a like totally unique story idea, but it's not the one I just heard. Oh, great. It's a sort of like a creative springboard. You yeah. take the the start of the story and work from that. Yeah, so that's actually ended up being like a lot of ideas. And then, you know, you think about something for weeks and by the time you get to the end, it looks nothing like what you started with. So, Yeah. I mean, it sort of reminds me of um, DP director relationship somewhat. The idea that you like springboard off the creativity, they sort of give you the first kind of thing to work with. And then you can kind of like go off in your own direction a bit with your own ideas based on that initial springboard. So as you're, it's the thing I always find, you always kind of need to need some sort of little flame to do it. Yeah. And I, I often like have these conversations, a lot of my friends are writers and I have this conversation with them a lot, but I'm always like, I don't think you need to be worried about sort of imitating someone because especially if they're like, if they've gotten their stuff made or 
imprints, then they've got to have gone through all these hurdles. They're probably amazing. And like, you should be so lucky as to do, you know, it's like, if you try and write your own version of a Tarantino movie, you're not going to come out with a Tarantino movie. You'll come out with something totally different because you're not him. So I feel like people worry way too much about being derivative, but it's like your work just comes out shaped like you anyway. So. Yeah, I know what you mean. I've been thinking about that recently about photography. I mean, there's the whole like everything's already been made already argument as well. But the, you know, even if you take someone else's photography as inspiration and even with a lot of elements, I've done that before, like or, or painting or whatever, you can, you still end up with something that's really quite far off it. Unless you are literally taking it and being like, I want to copy that word for word or like pixel for pixel. It's hard to actually imitate and copy in that way. You know, you always end up spinning it somehow. Exactly, definitely. And and you're going to go over something so many times. That's the like toughest part of screenwriting, I think, is that like 90% of a job is just rewriting your own work. So it's also like, you won't end up with this. It'll look completely different by the end and you'll like probably hate all of it because you spent too much time with it. So. <laughs> and are there comments come in from outside sources as well that kind of influence your, your yeah. view on the work? That was a big one because well, I wanted to be a writer ever since I was a little kid, I learned to read quite late because I was dyslexic. I mean, I just love books. I didn't know like kind of writing, but I just desperately wanted to be a writer. And I think my writing was okay for year nine or whatever. But the thing was, I was just like cripplingly shy about showing it to anybody. Then when I started trying to screenwrite, my first scripts were like really, really very bad. And I didn't want to show them to anyone. But I think that that's like taking medicine, right? You've got to show people your bad stuff because so much of a job is just learning to take notes, which I'm still not actually very good at. I just sort of like smile and nod and then go away, get upset on my own when no one sees, get over mm-hmm. it. And then, but like, that's actually, that's a huge part of the professional part of a job, which I hadn't realized. So I'm sort of glad that I'm like slowly toughening my skin up because... And are people quite openly critical? Like, will they be quite blunt about their thoughts on what you're doing? Yeah, now I've learned it to take it sort of as a compliment. So if I'm working with, like, in actual fact, if a producer bothers to sit down and talk to you, it's like the point you want to get to is the point where they're talking about the characters as if they're real people, right? And we're openly discussing, like, what Amy should do. But actually, I'm like, that's something from my childhood, and Amy is actually me, and so it's really her. But this is what I want, because it means I've, like, tricked them into thinking it's she's real, you know? It's like yeah, yeah. harsh criticisms are what you want. But I have to say the first script I wrote for, I wrote a feature script for someone who I didn't know, like a company hired me, super, super low budget. And it's never been made with good reason. But they sent me an email with notes that is to this day, I never managed to read it in one go. It was this enormous email with like such intense notes that I, I've tried since. And I have to like take time out and leave the email, like hyperventilate a little bit. Just being, I mean, they were fair, but just being things like, you know, every character should have a motivation and like, just like really, it was basically like a, an incredibly long, just write it better. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was really tough. That was really hard. I've kind of been the opposite. I've been trying, I've often wanted more feedback. Mm. As a DP, you don't really get the feedback in the same way by the sounds of it as you do. Cause I'm, I'm sort you just won't get called again. That's <laughs> just, I've never had anyone go, you know what? The reason why I didn't like that was, you know, I've had friends do that who don't work in the film industry. 
<laughs> I've had friends just go quiet when I've shown them things, you know, and I'm like, I didn't write it. <laughs> I'm like, what did you think about the lighting? They're like, what lighting? And I'm like, right, then it passed the test. <laughs> you didn't notice it. But yeah, it's interesting that you get that feedback. I'm a little envious in a way, but then also I understand how it must be difficult when it's not what you want to hear. Yeah, I think that's what I like about it is it's a job where you like are constantly learning and because you're collaborating with people and the script is like never done. I just mm. never really thought about this, but I guess your job, like you kind of come in, once you've finished it, there's no way you can redo it, right? So like there is a point at which you have done your job. Yeah. So there's more with post-production, but like at least in terms of the shoots, then it's like work with what we've got. Whereas the amount, do you have people come back to during lockdown, basically anybody I'd ever written a script with or for was like, I think we should rewrite this. And I was like, I don't have any time. <laughs> I'm losing my mind. So I don't want to write. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like you can just keep working on it forever, which is like the best part of it because you're sort of always learning and improving, but also the worst part of it because you're literally never done. Can you kind of share the process of getting an agent and how it's benefited you as a writer or how it, you imagine it will? Yeah, I actually had an agent before who I got because I got onto a screenwriting lab in LA and there I got introduced to somebody who introduced, who introduced me to an agent back home and she was starting her first list and was really, really lovely. But I think whatever reason, like I just didn't end up getting very many meetings that just didn't like, also the pandemic happened, but I wasn't actually, this is really annoying advice for everybody, but I wasn't actually looking for an agent because of that. When I, I had a friend, she'd like reconnected with somebody from her film school who's a successful writer and was like, oh, do you want me to see if he'll give you some advice? And I just always say yes to these things, even though at the time I was feeling a little bit down because I was like, I don't know what else I can be doing. But I was like, yeah, sure. And so I emailed him this very strange email that was probably a bit moany where I essentially was just saying like, I feel like I'm doing absolutely everything I can. What else can I be doing? Because I just don't seem to be like going as hard as I can on my own, but it doesn't feel like it's building momentum. I feel like if I took a day off, everything would just stop, you know? And he was really lovely and was like, this sounds like, um, I actually forwarded your email to my agent because I think he'd give you better advice on this. And then his agent called me and it was not to represent me. In fact, actually said at the start of a call, I can't take on anyone new, but just gave me like advice about the industry because he's like quite senior and experienced and has been around for a while. And that was really helpful because he really just like demystified, like I didn't really understand what agents were doing. He was quite like, well, you know, you get these samples and they get sent to these people and then it usually takes about this long for them to reply. And I was just like, oh, okay, this all makes so much more sense to me. And then he said, well, do you want me to read your samples? Because I might be able to recommend, you know, people I think might like your work. And what are samples? Sorry, just, just to clarify. Yeah, so they're like scripts that you're not necessarily looking to get made, but that showcase your writing. So I have The Eye, which is a feature film. But I already have in development, like Daphne's going to direct it. But that's like, so I'm not looking for anybody else to make that because that's with a production company, but I'm really proud of the writing on it. So there's that one and it's like a psychological thriller with supernatural elements. So it's kind of the kind of stuff I want to do. And then there, I wrote a comedy script that is, it's about a self-destructive millennial, right? So I, I kind of was like, I don't think this will actually get made just because there's a lot of shows like this, but I found it quite easy to write because it's a little bit autobiographical and quite cathartic. And so I'm proud of the writing on that as well. And again, like I send that to people, people like it, they don't necessarily want to make it, but they maybe hopefully want to see me. So I sent him both of those and then he called me and was like, 
actually, I really like this. I'd like to represent you. And I don't know. Oh, wow. Yeah, I know it was the dream. I think I actually made like a whimpering noise on the end of a phone. <laughs> <laughs> crazy. Oh, I could imagine. <laughs> I've still never seen him. Oh, really? Yeah, we've spoken on the phone, but he doesn't do Zoom calls, at least with me. And I, I don't know where he's living, but we've never met up in person. So it's, I say he's like Charlie from Charlie's Angels. He just like calls me with news. <laughs> and do you go out and fight bad guys? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Um, oh, that, that sounds great. Yeah, I did actually propose some, although some people are going quite hard the other way because I proposed to someone the other day about having a, a Zoom meeting as like a first kind of like introduction. And I was met with quite a stern response <laughs> that they were sort of like sick of Zoom meetings. Can we actually meet in person if possible? And I was like, yeah, I'm fine with that. <laughs> like, yeah. So yeah, it's, uh, it's good that we're kind of moving seemingly more back to some normality with that or a nice mix of the two yeah i have a um development meeting in person in a couple of weeks and that will be so almost all of the i had a tv show in development when i got my agent that was like we've done a couple of sessions i think or basically almost all of the actual like development work i've done has been on zoom so i'm i can count on one hand how many in-person development meetings i've had so i'm quite excited about it actually but sort of like a baby Zoom writer and I'm coming out for the real world. Yeah, well, so it's good to kind of put yourself in actual situations as opposed to kind of like ones that are presented on a screen, you know. So it's a different experience. And I suppose even if it takes a bit longer or whatever, like in my mind, I'm a bit like, well, you know, life's for living too. It's not just for being incredibly efficient all the time. So sometimes I think it's worth doing that. that. That's like my big theme of the moment, actually. I mean, it's so basic. So I mean, it's only because I'm realizing this now, but like I massively overschedule. I really feel like capitalism has tricked me into thinking that I've got to measure myself by my productivity. I know a lot of people are having this realization at the moment because I think the pandemic, there just wasn't really much else to do. I couldn't, didn't feel like I could have fun. So I just worked really hard. And now I'm like, obviously I feel incredibly privileged to have a job that I love and I still have to do other work to make money. I, I tutor politics which is a huge part of why I'm able to keep writing because that's like quite a high pay per hour. So you still have a lot of your own time. And I, I genuinely don't know how I would make it work about that job. But mm. yeah, I want to I switch off more. I've listened to the Lord album a lot. And I'm like, you know, what's the point of doing this job that you love if you don't enjoy the life that you've been lucky enough to have, you know? Yeah, that's so true. I mean, the amount of times I've heard as well, it's just like the freelance or self-employed life. It's supposed to give you more autonomy over your free time or whatever, but then it's kind of universally known that it actually makes you just work more. Like you spend more time, because you sort of, I suppose you're kind of riddled with the guilt of not working. Completely. If you, if you don't do it. So the new mantra I'm sort of trying to tell myself even though I don't think this is necessarily true, I get caught up in that thing of being like, I was up till 4am and like I've been working so hard because I needed to tell people that. And I'm like, actually, the most impressive thing would be to get all of this done and also clock off at five. You know, it's like, that's the actual flex is not, I killed myself working through the night. It's I got all of this done on a nine to five. So that's who I'm aspiring to be now. <laughs> yeah, the kind of work smart, don't work hard. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. not quite there yet, but I'm going to start trying to do that. Yeah, well, good luck with it. I want to hear how that goes. <laughs> so I can maybe copy some of that too. Um, would you be able to tell me about the biggest hurdle that you faced in your career and what you have done to manage this, if anything? So I, it's definitely just money. Like the 
pay. I know for screenwriters is very good eventually, but you have to work for so long for free before you get paid. I'm, I'm like a couple of things I've been properly paid for. But again, even then the money comes in months later in smaller installments and it's nowhere near enough to actually live off. And I think I was probably writing almost full time for like four years before I got any sort of pay for it. And that was, I was hugely privileged to be able to do that. In part, it's because I have a Cambridge degree and so I can get pretty well paid tutoring very easily. And Mm -hmm. if I didn't have that, I really feel like people should be honest about this because I feel like almost everybody who works in the creative industry has something that makes that possible. Be it like wealthy parents, I mean, you don't have to pay rent or like, you know, there's, there's like a thing and you're like, oh, that's how you've made all this add up. I was also like, my parents were really supportive of me doing this, which like emotionally, which made a big difference as well. They were really like, you should put the time in. So I, I started like spending all the rest of my time and I, I would put in probably like five hours a day writing. And just, I, th- I think of all those unpaid hours. And I don't know if I, I think I also got very fast as well. So like, that's the hurdle. And it's still like, I kind of wonder how much longer I'll be able to keep going before I need this to be the job that pays me because I just try not to think of my like unpaid work when I'm writing for myself and my paid work is any different because you're not going to get the great jobs if you don't like write your own amazing scripts that show who you are and keep you growing as a writer but it's a lot of unpaid work and I don't want to choose it forever so part of me is like there's always that thing looming over me of like a sort of ticking clock of how long I want to keep doing sort of scrappy money jobs, but I'm pretty lucky to manage it. So that I would say is one. And it's one that people really, really don't talk about, but I don't know how you get around that. I think you just sort of have to do it. Yeah. I mean, especially right at the beginning, like, yeah, I did a lot of work for free, but then a lot of the free work that I was doing when I wasn't getting paid, I was getting creative fulfillment. Sort of weirdly at the moment, it's what I'm trying to look for with photography to have a little bit more creative kind of autonomy again, doing something that's not exactly filmmaking, but it sort of allows me to still get that creative fulfillment, which sometimes I'm not getting when I'm kind of doing commercial work or work for someone else. You know, it doesn't always 100% tick the box. So I voluntarily do free work then. But then like you say, with a hope that one day you're like, well, I will get paid. But then there's something to be said for when you start getting paid for certain work and it starts being pulled away from you, you can stop loving it quite so much or, you know, so it's not, it's, there is a benefit to doing the free stuff for you. I imagine there'll always be just for artistic reasons. Definitely. And I, I try and like, especially then keep checking in with like, just saying to myself, like, if it never like happens, like it's whatever the big goal, I guess it would be like winning an Emmy or something like some stupid thing that I must have in my head if that never happens, would I still be glad I'd done this? You know, and so far, especially at like, there were times that were, it really felt like just messages in a bottle and I didn't think that anybody was ever going to read any of my stuff. I was like, well, I've still just enjoyed this enough, you know, but it's like, I probably still wouldn't take all this back because I met loads of amazing people making a bunch of, um, I made loads of short films. You mentioned this before, but this is totally why I took on so many jobs is for a while I've, because I didn't go to film school I was sort of trying to catch up. I was also just like, I'll be involved in making shorts in any way. So like, you need a script supervisor. Okay, I'll try and script supervise one of my friends. I wrote stuff, I produced, and I learned so much from all those people. I met loads of really, really cool people who are now a lot of my best friends from that sort of world. 
it was incredibly hard work, but also really fun. So, you know. Yeah. And bid on some amazing trips as well. Yeah, exactly. And so I didn't really get paid, but I got to do loads of really cool things. And again, that's possible because of a tutoring, because I understand that a lot of people can't just be like, I'll have fun experiences and not get paid for it because that's... Yeah. <laughs> it's six of one and half a dozen of the other in terms of like, you know, is it worth it from what you're explaining? But I, I imagine like um, looking at what you've done from the outside, it looks like it's been so eventful and you've achieved so much. And although I'm, you're saying like if the, the M is the end goal or whatever, um, it looks like already you've achieved so much from where I'm sitting. And um, it's definitely something to be proud of. Yeah, I mean, it definitely doesn't feel like that. It, uh, and there's so much time when it's, that's maybe the second biggest hurdle, but it's just being like, am I doing this job? Especially before like anybody... So I got a show in development a couple of years ago, and that's how I got an agent. But that was because I am like best friends with a really amazing writer called Tom Rasmussen, who had written a book and already had an agent and wanted to write this idea with me. And so I like sort of got in on Tom's coattails. That was great. And I love working on that. But then I also, in my head, I'm like, am I actually doing this? I'm just like sad at home writing all the time, but that's, I'm a tutor, presumably. And you know, when your job becomes too much of your identity, you can start spending too much time thinking. I was like, is anyone ever going to make any of these scripts? Is anyone ever going to read any of this? Like, it's just me getting my own shorts made, right? Mostly just me and my friends making them. So I'm like, am I actually doing this? And then, and then I got an agent on my own. And I was like, okay, now I feel like maybe I actually am a writer, but you have to have like so much confidence in the fact that it's gonna but you're actually doing it. And for a lot of people, maybe no one except their family will ever read them. And that's probably no reflection of how good the scripts are, right? It's also like access and all these other things. So it's kind of, mm -hmm. I think I was constantly looking around for like signs that I was one of the chosen people. You're looking around being like, am I one of the people who will never get read or am I not? And yeah, kind of lost my mind a little bit doing that too much, I think. Yeah, but you, you know, you've worked hard as well, though, haven't you? Learning, and it seems like you've put a lot of emphasis on learning, not just learning about screenwriting, but also learning about all the kind of other roles in the film industry and taking an active interest in producing and directing and script supervising and everything. So that you, I imagine that can all feed back to what your main goal is. Actually, yeah, that's, I think, and actually, now you mentioned that, I think that's how I dealt with that feeling of being like, because you just have so little control over whether like you're going to get lucky or not. So it was just like, well, as long as I feel like I'm acquiring a new skill that is somehow related to this, I feel like I'm moving forward. And that's kind of the only way I can drive myself forward because, you know, I'm sending it to everybody I can and I can't control whether they like it. I can't control the offices of the production company. So I'm just going to have to like keep trying to get better. Yeah. And uh, you've done well. Well done. You've got the agent. <laughs> I'm excited to see what's coming up next. Competition time. If you're enjoying the conversation, please can you do me a favor and leave me a review on Apple Podcasts? It's super easy to do. And if you let me know you've left a review using the Get In Touch page on visiongraft.com or by sending me a message on the Vision and Graft Instagram at visiongraft, you'll be automatically entered for free into one of the monthly draws to win a Roscoe Mixbook digital swatch book. This very useful tool enables you to pre-visualize colored gels and LED colors, and they're really useful for those working in film, photography, or lighting design to plan which colors they could use in their lighting. I use mine all the time in my planning and I couldn't be without it. Spread the word if any of your mates would be interested in getting their hands on one, the competition is free to enter. If you really want a mixed book and you'd like to increase your chances, if you repost any of my posts on the Vision and Graft Instagram to your story, 
I will add an extra entry into the competition for you if you let me know that you've done that. The last date for entry is midnight the 31st of August 2022 and I'll contact the winner directly to arrange their new mixbook delivery. The competition is only available to residents of the UK, EU, USA and Canada but if you'd still like to leave me a review if you're outside of those areas I will very much appreciate that. Full terms and conditions are available at visiongraph.com. Good luck with the competition, now back to the show. As a co-founder of Breaking Through the Lens, an initiative that connects female and non-binary directors to finance at film markets, as I kind of ripped off the website before and again now, you've got like a passion for inclusivity and diversity in the film industry. What was it that led you to form this initiative, which is such a great thing to do? Yeah, that was mentioning Daphne again. God, she's such a huge part of my life. (laughs) So she is an amazing director and a real like jump in first and check how deep the water is afterwards kind of person, which I'm not at all. And that's why we really complement each other and why I have my best adventures with Daphne. But we went to Cannes because we had a short film in the short film corner and it was fun. And we got so much out of being at the market, even though I now, like we now laugh about, we were going around with our like little one page we printed on our home printer that I now realize doesn't have any of the right information, but we just like tried to take meetings with anybody who would answer our emails and learn loads about what we didn't know about particularly finance because we didn't have a producer at the time. So we were just Mm -hmm. pending, but we knew what we were doing. And then the next year we went back. And at this point, we had a producer, had learned a lot more. And we had somebody who'd invested in films, who was a friend, was hiring a villa. And he was like, you can have a villa for a night to have a party. And we were like, okay, great. Seek films, drinks. And then we realized no one cares about us or will come to our can event. So we were like, what's a more interesting way we could use this space? So we decided to invite 10 female filmmakers to pitch their films and we pitch our film at the same time. So it was really, initially, it was really just like naked self-interest of like, how could we get some people to hear about our film? But Mm -hmm. as we did it, the response was so amazing from, well, the filmmakers, they were just people we knew, we invited and they were incredible. And then the industry just like really responded to it. And you could tell there was this huge appetite for finding like really good female-led films. And we also started like engaging a lot more of a debate. That year was the year that head of the Cannes Film Festival, he was asked why there weren't more women in the Cannes lineup. And he said they just didn't get enough submissions. Like women don't make good enough films, essentially. Kind of misquoting him there. But we took huge events at that. I started reading loads more about it and just became really passionate about this because there is almost gender parity coming out of film school and closer to gender parity in the doc world because the budgets are smaller. So really clearly the issue is not that there aren't female filmmakers or female filmmakers that are good enough. It's that they're not getting given the same size budget as men. So you can't, it trickles all the way down, right? You can't get into Cannes if you've made an amazing film on a super indie budget because the film kind of films that are going there are the big films. So like it just... The problem is much earlier and we think it's at the finance stage. Anyway, we became much more passionate about it. And then the next year we did like open applications. You made it much more of an organization. And I think that like, I feel really passionately that I think all artists should learn about the financial side of a job because learning about how you finance films has taught me so much. And also I just think that you should roughly know what's going on in a contract when you sign it, right? Like if the film is your baby and you're handing it over to producers who you should absolutely trust, you should still kind of understand what's going on and and the kind of deals that are going to be made and what all of it means because you're just sort of disempowered if you don't. Your project's still going to be sold in that world. And can can be very, it's so divorced from the like 
artistry of it, right? You meet all these people who I would never normally meet who just see films as like numbers. I'm, I'm sure they love films, but they're really into the business side of it. And even though I know some people can find that like sort of like dirty, I'm like, well, your film, if you get lucky enough to make it, is still going to be bought and sold by people who are into buying and selling films rather than like feeling them very deeply. So you should probably like know that world. Yeah. It's a huge answer. (laughs) No, it's a brilliant answer. I mean, you're right. I think that can apply to, like you're saying, to any creative endeavor, the more you can understand the business of it. But yeah, I think I've definitely been guilty of not doing that in a lot of ways. And I've had to catch up in the last few years trying to understand more about the business. And I've got screwed in the past because of not being educated properly on it. And I'm still educating myself on it. It's an ever-growing thing. But yeah, it's, uh, I suppose that's the thing about being a, an artist or a creative that wants to make a living out of it. You've got to balance the education about the creativity with the being a business person and understanding how the overall business of that industry works and how the finance works and where it trickles down from. And But it's such a great thing that you did starting that and pursuing, continually pursuing it and, and kind of aiming for equality in the film industry. I think it's great. Every year it grows and gets better. And it's it's the films that submit, we get more submissions. They're like consistently higher quality. We get more response from the investors and the people we're emailing about it. It's like, but it goes to show there is really like a thirst for that. And then mm-hmm. I think after I think it was the third year, we opened it up to non-binary directors as well, which was a learning experience for us because we wanted to make sure that we did that properly. But also really made me think, I was like, I'm not sure off the top of my head I can name a single non-binary director, which feels kind of weird. But yeah, so that's probably even more of a pressing issue. But then I wonder if some people are still in the closet. Anyway. Perhaps, perhaps. But yeah, so thank you. Thank you for explaining that. I think it's a really great initiative. And um yeah, I'm excited to see how that grows as well. And hopefully, like you say, it will it will be part of the bigger picture of bringing equality in the film industry across the board, which is necessary and in society. So yeah, I'm, I'm 100% behind you. Do you have any techniques for keeping on track with your mental well-being? And would you be happy to share with me? Yeah, I this year has been, I think I've always been a really anxious person, but the pandemic, like a lot of people, because it made things worse, it made me really like, acknowledge and name what I think has been going on for a lot of my life and so I do uh, like all the things that most people do I I try and meditate as much as possible I work out not really as my health although that probably should be why I do it but more just because I find like it calms me down I know what I do that I shouldn't do like I over schedule my day and I like drink way too much coffee considering that like I'm an anxious insomniac. I have like four cups of coffee a day and I need to stop doing that. But yeah, I haven't perfectly worked it out yet. Yeah, just going for a run. That's that's such an annoying one to say. It's a very valid one though. Exercise is important. I don't I don't personally, I think the reason why you're saying that you do exercise is a, possibly an even better one than for health or any vanity reason. Like because that's how you can sustain it if you do it for happiness reasons I think I mean that's Joe Wicks's mentality you know he's all about like if it makes you happy you'll carry on doing it so you need to tap into that more than anything else really definitely and I also have started putting things in my diet like if I have a project I'll put like an artificial deadline of something nice so for example today is one of my best friend's 30th birthdays and 
as a birthday party, but I'd actually like been planning my whole life, my whole life recently up until this day, which is why I wanted, I was so glad we did this recording before tonight for no apparent reason, but just because it's nice to have like structure. And when I'm like stressing out, my mind's going a mile a minute to feel like there's going to be a point at which I'll have a break. I have a break anyway, but I'm very capable of just like working myself up into the state where like everything I have to do is running through my head and I feel like it'll never end. So just being like, I don't have to get through my whole life successfully. I just have to get to Tom's birthday. And then after Tom's birthday, I'll find something else I'm looking forward to. And then I'm just trying to get to that, you know? Maybe that's not a great way to live, but it's been making me much happier. So even that, that short, you know, like going to a friend's 30th birthday party, I imagine it's just that stepping out, isn't it? So you can go again yeah. next week. I have like nothing planned tomorrow. So I don't have to think about anything tonight. I'm so excited about that. But <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, but that required like, because of what I'm like, that required me to like really plan in advance for that. But I'm also going to try, I hope this is successful, but I want to try reading more because the pandemic just shredded my ability to sit down and read a book. Like just the quiet and I couldn't like focus on anything. So I think I'm, I'm starting to like plan in like half an hour to sit down with a book most days. And I think that's going to be a bit like meditation. Yeah, it's great. So it's, I read recently about reading that it's a good way of escaping, much like going on a holiday. It's a good way of escaping reality, your reality and using your imagination, obviously. And that I've kind of introduced day reading into my life recently. And I've always been a reader before bed, which is like you read for 20 minutes, and then your eyes are falling. So I've introduced day reading recently. And I've, you know, there's like an hour or two. And it's really rewarding. You're full in the face of me <laughs> that I'm doing an hour or two's worth of reading. Oh, to a reading. That's amazing. I'm also, it's a lot, I read a lot of nonfiction. I'm trying to educate myself on a lot of things at the moment. So, you know, I was actually reading a business book for two hours. So it's sort of related to work, but I'm, I'm like, it's work. I'm reading for two hours. You know, I'm justifying this. Whereas I've got like a more fun book for not during work hours, but I just get, I just found them myself. I was getting a bit bored of constantly watching TV and whatever. So I just wanted a different entertainment form and I've really not read enough in my adult life. So I'm trying to catch up in a way. I took a bit of time off recently and I read a book in like two days and I haven't had that feeling since I was a kid and it used to be like all I did. And it feels a bit shameful that I don't read more because I am a writer, but like I did that. I was like, oh, this feels like it's satisfying in a way that like nothing else is. It's a different, really enjoyable feeling. And I was like, I miss this so much. I think it's absolutely what I need. Because yeah, I just, especially when you're an anxious person, it's like, I need to tap out of my reality a little bit. It's exhausting. Yeah, I think it's weird you're saying that because I've done the same with film. Like I've gone through the pandemic specifically watching barely any films. Like I really, I went for a few months not watching a film because I just got to this point where I was like, I don't want to watch films. I, I was so tapped into reality. It was actually my mum that said to me, maybe you should watch a film because you don't always need to be such a realist all the time. Like, it's good to escape. And I was like, yeah, you're right. So I've been trying to actually re-got into film watching a bit, but I was like, right, I'm going to watch Jurassic Park. I'm going to watch like a classic, like complete escapism film. And it was almost like, I was almost a bit anxious before I watched it because I haven't watched a film in so long. I was like, am I going to enjoy this? And then I watched it and I was like, oh, that was great. That was like one of the reasons why I wanted to become a filmmaker. You know, and I've started doing the same with reading fiction because I used to exclusively read non-fiction. So it's like, I'm trying to escape morality a bit and I think it'll lead to being a lot happier you know not to constantly just be like I mean humans have been telling stories for since the dawn of time it's like very important to us so to not be involved in that 
or not be absorbing that. I think it has a knock on effect to our mental well-being. Yeah, I think it's just so important for like your empathy, right? To be, it's the closest we can get to the experience of really walking in somebody else's shoes. And I feel like as we're more sort of separated from people around us, it's maybe even more important to like really practice being able to empathize with someone. If you go back to when you first started your career and give yourself some advice about how to approach the most difficult challenges that you'll face, what would that advice be? Probably be like not, not take yourself so seriously. I feel like that was a hurdle. It comes with confidence, right? But like being able to accept that some of my work is bad and laugh at like the really bad ideas I've had and that like, you know, I totally love what I do and I actually do think it's very important for all the things we just said about empathy in the world and spreading ideas, but it's also not saving lives. So like you can just calm down a bit and like, I feel like my writing, there was a huge leap upwards as soon as I started having a bit of fun with it because one, I was much more comfortable sharing it with people and two, I was like doing more interesting things on the page. So I think I would just say like, yeah, don't take yourself too seriously. You mentioned actually before how your career kind of intertwines with your identity. This is kind of like spinning off what you just said. Is this as a result of kind of pulling the two away from each other? Yeah, I think so. Because it's like, that's one of the things that comes from my parents. My parents very much like their jobs are a huge part of who they are. And a lot of people growing up because they were mostly artists, like that's kind of who they are. And it was for years, it's like the first thing I'd ask people if I met them at parties. And it was only when I met someone who was like, pointed out that was weird. Like I don't want to talk about work right now. And I was like, but how else do I know who you are if I don't know what it is that you either do or want to do? And that was really unhealthy because yeah, I had this whole complex in my head. People would ask me and I'd be like, I'm a writer. I'm a writer. I'm a writer, sort of. And uh, and then my dad was always like, just say you're a writer. No one cares. But <laughs> like, it's not a quiz. But then you like start feeling that way and you realize that it's not going to solve all your problems. You're not going to, when I say, when I think of like, I want to be Emily Carlton, the writer, I'm actually thinking of like some stupid idea I have in my head of what a writer is, who is like really well-dressed and very thoughtful and like probably drinks fantastic red wine and has like stirring conversations late at night about art and the world. And I'm like, oh, I probably, I actually want to be a lot of things that I associate with that. So I want to be, and just writing is a part of it, but I want to be this interesting, amazing person, but I'm, I'm not yet. So it's broader than that. I only ask that question because I, I've had an experience myself where I've, I've, I think it, since the pandemic started, I've pulled myself away from William Price and the cinematographer. Like, that's not who I am. I've really had to teach myself that's not who I am. I'm Will. Yeah. I mean, I've said it in an earlier podcast, but it's like, it's, that's been like a really dawning realization on me. And I'm hoping, I think I'm just getting better at my job, actually, and just better at being a freelance business person because I've just stopped, the emotional stuff's dropped away. Because I've just had this like, yeah, I've stopped taking myself so seriously. And I'm just willing to accept wherever Will Prizen goes now, not like has to draw himself up against someone else like Roger Deakins or Sean Bobbitt or someone that I aspire to be like, it doesn't matter if I don't reach those heights as long as I do what I can do to the best of my ability, you know? That's amazing. That's so inspiring. Because yeah, say wanting to be Roger Deakins or like whoever I might want to be, it's like, what do I actually want there? And it's it's not just... Obviously, I would love the ability to make whatever work I want and to be writing really amazing things. But I guess I also want like the money and the respect and the, basically we just we, all we all want is happy lives. And I think sometimes I especially can just reduce that down to like I want to be successful in this job. 
and that equals a happy life. But a happy life is a really broad thing and I'm going to have to like work on multiple areas of my life to get there. Yeah, and life's happening right now, isn't it? Life's not just happening in 40 years. And it's like, so we need to, it's whilst we're stressing out about making the perfect life, you know, it's passing us by. Yeah. Finally, what gives you hope in life? Um, I think the thing that I feel like most hopeless about is politics, because obviously I spend a lot of time talking and thinking about politics because it's my other job. And I'm really, even though tutoring can be incredibly tedious, I'm really lucky, but it just keeps me talking to 17 year olds about politics. And actually probably about once a month, I'll leave a lesson just being like, I think the world is going to be okay because they get, I swear they care more than most people did my age. I was a very like angry political teenager, but I was pretty unusual in that sense. And like, there's nothing more satisfying than like explaining ideas to them that I think they matter and seeing them like really catch fire about them. So I guess like teenagers who are angry about the world really give me hope. I kind of feel like maybe they're a bit smarter and better than we were. So you've seen Teen Vogue. It's amazing. Like that's all like very radical political articles. So yeah, that gives me hope. (laughs) that's a brilliant answer very unique first time I've had that as a response but yeah thank you for approaching that question because I know it's like a it's a bit abstract but but yeah thanks so much for coming on the podcast as well I really appreciate you being open and honest and yeah just talking so freely with me Um, I'm massively grateful so thanks so much thanks so much for having me I love the podcast so I'm so excited to be on it find us online at visiongraft.com And for updates, follow Will on Instagram at VisionGraft.